With one creative gesture, you can create a platform to build community. And if you sell any of the art, you're on your way of building a micro economy. It's so inconsequential, but it matters. Forget the wine and the cheese plate. Get your local pupuseria involved. Send me an invite. This is Studio Confessions, the podcast. I am your host, Luis Martin, the art engineer. Listen in for conversation with artists and makers as we talk about their creative practice and what moves them. Let me share my wax poetic monologues on how to activate your creativity to live an inspired and more beautiful life. That's right, I said beautiful. Welcome to the studio. I'm glad you're here. Do you know what a no movie is? Have you ever heard about that art collective called ASCO? It means disgust or repulsive in Spanish. They used to do this performance called No Movies. They would stage dramatic scenes from movies that never were. On one occasion, they staged a dinner party in a high-traffic intersection. And other times, they would set up glamorous shoots on the streets of East L.A. It was in response to anti-Chicano rhetoric in the main media and the weight and influence of Hollywood and its lack of representation of Latinos and Chicanos. Sounds like a relevant argument now, except that this happened in the 70s. And similar art that posed the same argument happened in the 80s and the 90s, and so went back before. I just made that word up. Why don't you know about it? I only know about it because I met one of the members of the group, Gronk. Remember him? I spoke about him in the Minted Mentors episode. He was the first real, in-the-flesh, painted, splattered, overall-wearing artist I ever met. I was lucky. So much transpires. A lot of important art about important issues and conversations but we don't know about it, because most of it doesn't fit into the mainstream narrative. Because, effectively, it doesn't fit the shape or shade of history as the powers that be wanted. Will your art make it into the art history books? Will mine? Does it matter? If it's not propagating the narrative that pushes the mainstream agenda, most likely not. But hold on, there's something so liberating about this fact. Don't get me wrong, our stories need to be heard, and we need to fight the decisive supremacy of mainstream tooth and nail. But just like Asko and Gronk's work, the art made an impact on the people that needed it the most, the people in their immediate communities. And as we all know, there's no job description for the role of artists. There is a definite role artists can play in society and their communities. That much has been proven especially in communities that are marginalized enough to lack agency, but visible enough to be targeted and villainized. That some kid saw the performance and caught a reflection of themselves in the art that then prompted them to have deep thoughts about their culture and its place in the world is perhaps monumentally more important than, say, some tourist having access to a picture of the performance via a magnet at some posh art museum gift shop. I mean, let's aim for both, but let's take care of our house first. There are so many untold, undocumented stories of art and people who, through creative gestures, have stated ideas, demonstrated truths, and taken up space, both physical and intellectual. Perhaps not all artists, and perhaps not all meant to be art. Some were protesting, some were personal rituals to arrive at catharsis, to call yourself an artist is giving yourself certain right and an initiation which comes through some understanding of the creative class and its mores. Qualifications not needed for the creative gestures that access protest or catharsis. 
A lot of people are living enchanted creative lives without the labels or BS of justifying what it means to be an artist. Growing up in LA, I used to see this woman who wore a pyramid-shaped hairdo and walked around on platform shoes around Melrose. And there was another person in Miami who only wore green. And there's another one here in New York City. You can follow her on Instagram, at Green Lady of Brooklyn. I don't know if they consider themselves artists, but there is an art, an aesthetic triumph in their presence. It's completely punk. It's a subtle protest, but a protest all the same. A not conforming, not shying away, and taking up space. I remember one afternoon I was walking home from skipping school at the library. Along the way, I realized there was just enough time and distance to smoke one last cigarette and still have the safety distance to have the smell dissipate by the time I got home. Yeah, I was that kid. I sat down on the street and had my smoke and pulled out my journal. In my periphery, I saw a swath of pink approaching me. It reminded me of the scene in The Wizard of Oz where Glenda, the Good Witch of the North, slowly descends from a bubble. When I turned, I saw that it was a woman in a disheveled bubblegum pink prom dress with a tiara nestled on top of her dreads. Her lipstick seemed as if it might have been applied in a moving car. It was ruby red. She kneeled in front of me and said, Well, what do we have here? I was in awe of her presence. Her tone was full of ease and almost joy. We exchanged pleasantries. She didn't want to bum smoke or wanted anything from me. Had she recognized that I was one of her own? An artist? A lost soul? A fashionista? Stupidly, I asked her, why are you dressed like that? Her eyes glazed over and said, oh well, and scurried away. It was like La Virgen de Guadalupe had manifested in front of me. And I was like, is your veil taffeta or velvet? I mean, I had bursted the glycerine bubble and it was over. But her ease and altogether weirdness stayed with me. Was she an artist? Probably not. Was she processing something and in the middle of some psychosis? For sure. But aren't we all? And as artists, we have that gift. The ease and the right to play out our psychosis on canvas, through words, or fashion. The fact that she and other artists like the Asco artists, can play out their ideas and issues in such an overt and obviously cathartic manner is no small victory. We, you, must do the same. If I chose to explore all that plagues my psyche and choose to make big art about it or chose to wear prandress myself and douse myself in tar and pig's blood to comment on the endless oil wars and animal cruelty in our world, I can. It is also inconsequential in the main scheme of things. I'm not talking about the universe's grand scheme of things. I'm talking about the main stream scheme. The one that's presently keeping us distracted in echo chambers of like-minded merchandise. But hold on. Again, I choose to see this as a good thing. I choose to leverage this imposed invisibility by the mainstream and populist government as my license to be as extravagant as I want. Do the same. While I'm not walking the streets in prom dresses, while having dinner parties at Times Square just yet, I get to think, I get to do this, talk to you. This is my muscle. I get to flex so inconsequently to the main scheme. But I propagate. I propagate seeds of radical creative gestures, a crime in many parts of the world. There are a lot of untold stories of lives lived, of imposed failures and deliberate victories by those that dared. Each brick on the proverbial paved road 
is an untold story with no second act. This is not a dress rehearsal. You're on. Hey, why so quiet? Let me know your take on the talk. Go to studioconfessions.com and reach out to start a conversation. Or even better, leave a review on whichever platform you're listening on. It goes a long way. Want to see some visuals on the essence of the conversation? Go to Instagram and follow me at Art Engineer to see my collage work and inside look at the studio. Now let's get back to the conversation. You know, if I could tattoo inspirational quotes on my body, I would. But that defeat the purpose because I wouldn't be able to read them, right? Among the many, a favorite is the uber-simplistic dance like no one is watching, coined by Miss Piggy or some other Muppet. Actually, it's from a song called Come From The Heart by Susan Clark and Richard Lee. Don't look it up. I think it strikes a chord with me because when I was a kid, on some bright sunny day in my mother's apartment, when I discovered my shadow, I quickly proceeded to introduce myself to my shadow through dance. Like no one was watching. Gyrating, little limbs extending in every direction, and absolute freedom. The only thing that broke the magic were the giggles coming from behind me. It turned out, in fact, some ones were indeed watching me. My mother and my sister were viciously pointing and giggling, making fun of me. I immediately froze and dissolved into the kitchen. I never danced again, kind of. It was a rare moment that I saw both my mother and my sister share a good time or laugh together. The fact that it came at the expense of my self-esteem was something I was willing to pay for, despite the crippling sting. But I mean, they didn't beat me up or gay bash me, I rationalized. I could have just kept on dancing. And as a matter of fact, after years of self-help books, seminars, and walking on fire, I've changed the narrative. As I remember it now, I kept dancing, and eventually, a disco ball dropped from the ceiling, along with a pink feather boa that landed perfectly over my shoulders as I extended my little hands to both of them. And we all danced. We all danced together. I now understand how inconsequential these gestures of creativity are in relation to the amount of empowerment and freedom they yield. I wish I could have known that then. Yeah, at five. How inconsequential these giggles and pointings were and would be throughout my childhood. That I would escape to New York to make art and none of it would matter. After a process the experience, that is. I mean, let's get a gram of logic here. There is an emotional and cognitive cause and effect for everything. The giggles from my mother and sister make me feel shame and humiliation. I never danced again, not like no one was watching. I had to process that. But when I did, and this is glorious because I just made the connection as I was writing this. When I left the shame at the door and allowed myself to dance again, my life changed. You see, I met my best friend slash husband dancing. Someone that I have known half of my life. Someone who also wants to feed the pigeons in Paris in old age. It was not as salacious as my shadow dance. It was a week after September 11, and everyone needed to be close and around other people, even if they were strangers. So I went to some club in Queens called Crash. I danced with my group of friends, not anyone in particular. And at some point, I started dancing around this other person. Their energy was good. And by that I mean there was nothing seedy, no grinding, no touching. It was just good energy. After dancing for three hours, the music changed. From house to salsa. Everyone stopped as if their shift had ended. And the next cohort of dancers moved in. When I looked up, it was him. The one. I instantly fell in love. 
Not that I would tell him this, not right away. As a matter of fact, he asked me if I had a boyfriend. I said no. When I asked him the same question, he said he did have a boyfriend, but that we should be friends anyway. That was enough for me. And well, that was 18 years ago. And still, every day feels like we just got off the dance floor. All this time, I had not danced, and I still really don't. I had arrested a form of expression, a primordial one, at the expense of my own development, because people laughed and pointed. What the laugh and the giggles meant to them is lost in translation and time. Ultimately, it's up to me, us, to assign meaning to our experiences. So while I had read it as cruel, I can now dismiss it as a funny incident and partially process it through forgiveness and delusion and call it a dance party. They won't be invited to the next party, but that's okay. And that's how I can move on and then let go. But I can't help to think that all this time I could have been dancing using this tool vehicle to be more alive. If love manifested when I danced, what else can I attract when I use all of my creative facilities? What if that thing in me that's dying to come out, you know, that ineffable source of energy in your center that keeps you going as much as it scares you? What if shadow dancing is how we arrive at that ineffableness, where we learn the steps we need to take, the words worthy of a voice? Here is where we dare to say, I want to dance. I want to dip my toes in the Ganges rivers. I want to write books. What if this is our vortex of manifestation per the law of attraction? These can be scary things because they're proclamations, right? Proclamations that require action to move beyond creative gestures to think and act differently. I know I, we are on the right track, but we got to use our emotional and intellectual tools to make art, expansive art that reaches the heart and intellect. I will use my mind, my body, and my soul to create as if no one's watching. I'll dance with my shadow wholeheartedly because whether they are or are not watching and giggling, that's inconsequential. Do you want to dance? Right out of college, I got a studio. My first studio was in Spanish Harlem. It was 45 minutes to an hour from my house. When that building was bought out, as is common of old buildings infested by artists, I found a closer studio in Williamsburg that was a third of the size and cost just as much. I didn't know what I was doing, but I knew I needed that space. Despite the smell of old coffee grinds and ship-like narrow hallways, it was part of the experience I was looking for in becoming an artist. The space was so small that if I extended my arms, I could touch either side of the wall. But I was determined to be about that life, to have an art practice with a studio the way artists do. I was sold on this idea and found romance in it, even if the only window was right in front of the boisterous elevated J train. Not even the constant fighting below deterred my delusion. I was in my 20s. I still had some tolerance for this kind of stuff. But the truth was, I was clueless and felt ambivalent about where I was. I had just designed a nightclub from some shady characters of few streets down the studio. It was a lucrative project with clandestine meetings and endless trips to Ikea. But it happened in 2008, just as the recession hit. So my design career ended as soon as it began. While thinking about my space and feeling so disoriented, I subconsciously started working on large hands made out of chicken wire and covered in clear duct tape. I was revisiting a college project that I liked. They were big hands, ones that might belong to a giant. Then I created arms, then legs, 
than a torso. Somewhere along the way, in my head, I must have decided to address my stumped state in this matchbox studio. Before I knew it, I was vigorously manufacturing a figure that would expand and would eventually break us out of this tiny space. Before I knew it, I was vigorously manufacturing a sculpture, an effigy, that was expanding and would eventually break us out of this tiny space. In creating this mammoth sculpture, I felt like I was learning a new body language, one that moved with authority outside the guise of doing schoolwork versus creating something for the sake of my own curiosity and art practice. My limbs oscillated between working like an insect, buzzing and twisting and fastening wire ends, and then to that of an alpha, moving massive shapes without strain. Looking back, that translucent giant mirrored my ambition, my dreams that I'm still pursuing, dreams that have never fit my circumstances. But that's what makes a good dream. Once the giant was done, there would be no opening, no newsletter. I can even post it on Instagram because it hadn't been invented yet. It was a private, creative gesture that needed to be executed. For me, no one else. I was able to learn from it without worrying about likes or if it looked resolved enough. When it was time to move on and get rid of the giant, I summoned the help of my husband's brother and cousin. They weren't artists, but they were used to my projects and set aside judgment, at least in front of me. The three of us ousted the giant sculpture headfirst through the door. A figurative forced labor. After a few scratches and minor damage to clothes, hair, and skin, we made it out. We took the giant to Rotney Park across the street. It was already dotted with the morning crowd of bon vivants drinking from paper bags. While there was no Instagram, I insisted we do a quasi-photo shoot. It was silly, it was fun, and it was an exercise for me in not being precious about these creative art gestures. After we got a few shots, we each chose a limb, flattened it out with our body weight, and folded it up as one does their laundry. We met at the giant's torso, rolled it up, and fit it nicely into the trash can in the corner. That something so big could be so disposable was a teachable moment. That something that I had labored over would be rubbish in a matter of seconds was depressing to say the least. How do I make something count beyond the delusion of gratifying posts? How do I, we, contribute to society that doesn't see us? The idea of taking space, especially in art, is an obvious argument. When you think about big art, what comes to mind? To me, I instantly think of graffiti, or as it's been rebranded for some years now, street art. And of course, one thinks of Jeff Koons. Both are perfect examples of who gets to take up space and contribute to the social narrative. Graffiti has been eternally vilified for destroying both public and private property. But in the 80s, its salient presence was inescapable in cities like New York, Chicago, Detroit, and LA, and it started influencing the mainstream. It eventually evolved from the pejorative graffiti to street art, when white artists started getting noticed, like Keith Haring. Presently, street art is visible in every gentrifying and gentrified neighborhood by artists from around the world. Moreover, I mean, thank goodness that the whole Jeff Koons craze is mellowing down, because talk about obvious commentary on not only who gets to take up space in society, but what they get to say. These giant sculptures are literally about consumerism and how we're all lobotomized by shiny, reflective surfaces. We literally go apeshit when we see something shiny and reflective. And ironically enough, that's the beauty of art. The art that resonates the deepest is always the art that reflects. But with Kuhn's, we're talking about low-level superficial parlor tricks. There are some great artists offering reflections that don't just spit back your image as a marketing tactic. So who gets to take up space 
and be seen is an obvious argument. Tides are changing though. There is a strong millennial wave of artists taking up space and showing us reflections of ourselves we've been taught to be ashamed of and talking about issues so ingrained that we've never questioned, like colorism, gender, colonial and ancestral traumas. It's all coming out. It's important that we all talk about this. No one singular voice should have to be burdened and labeled as the angry black, Latino, feminist, queer minority in the room who is then excluded from the conversation. We can all talk about this, but let's make sure these changing tides become solid ground for us to edify our presence and leverage in society. Look at the work of Studio Confession alum Gabriel Garcia Roman, episode 34, titled Icon Maker. This artist is literally canonizing queer people of color and using their work as a platform to tell the subject's stories. Look at the work of Pope L, an artist whose work is currently at MoMA, now through February of 2020. His powerful performance-based work is conceptual and vividly questions our culture that is consumed with success, yet riven by social, racial, and economic conflict. I know. I get it. I like flowers and shiny things too. Who wants to think, right? But if we don't, policies, laws, and restrictions are going to literally make it impossible for us to take up space, for us to make an art of our lives. Here's the thing about art. It can give you a direct line to yourself. My collage work comes from a subconscious place. Collage lends itself to that. You're at the mercy of the materials you find usually. And like in life, once you realize you have no control on most things, wonderful things start to happen. Each of my collages are latent searches for answers for the divine. It's part of my dogma. When I'm done, the narratives, the stories, the themes emerge. Recently, I've made a few collages with kids in them, which is not something I usually do. I mean, I love kids. I would love to be a parent, but it's not a subject I explore in my work. To get to the bottom of this, and any quandary, I center myself. I shut up, sit still, for just a lingering moment, and then, when I sit long enough, I realize. I'm angry. I realize I'm sad. I feel the weight of the stories of the children in the internment camps, which has been long filed away with yesterday's news. I feel the pull of knowing that they're still there. Some child is crying out to me, to you, right now, and I don't know how to answer. I can rationalize this tug, this pain, as not being all altruistic. I can look back and understand that I want to save these children, and in doing so, saving some part of my father healing some part of my fractured family, and that's okay. When my father was a child, he arrived to LA with his mother and little sister. My grandmother came searching for her estranged husband. They were undocumented. After less than a picturesque reunion, my grandmother found herself a single parent in an unfriendly foreign country. It was the 70s and immigration raids were a common terror, but she managed to find a job and she enrolled the kids in an elementary school nearby one in which her daughter would later become a teacher at. But that was many years from now, and an utter dream from where they stood then. One morning, before the kids were off to school, my grandmother went downstairs to get my father bread for a school lunch. He was to follow and meet her there. When he got downstairs, he found my grandmother surrounded by men in suits from INS, the Immigration and Naturalization Service, the precursor to ISIS, but just as ruthless. Before he could react, they proceeded to detain her. My grandmother saw my father and locked eyes, 
She nodded and gestured for him to leave. Otherwise, he'd be detained and deported, and possibly separated in the process. This ten-year-old boy was forced to look away, to turn his back as his mother was being dragged out of the country. My father was ten, and my aunt was six. They stayed in their apartment by themselves for three weeks, while my grandmother crossed the Rio Grande one more time to be with her kids. What does that do to a child? What does that do to the child that becomes a man? It takes a few generations to get over these traumas. It takes more than time. I'd be lying if I didn't admit that part of this story, which is just a small part of our personal and collective story, hasn't left me and my father partially crippled. Through anxiety, fear, untapped rage, my art, my creative gestures become my rehabilitation. I have the privilege to eat, to have a place to live, to make art. But what to do about this legacy? I take up space. I thrive in my space. And I hold the door. This is my way to fight without getting maimed. I'm not standing in a protest to be a sitting duck in a crowd. Not in these United States of America. That's not how you change things. Not here. For sure in Bolivia. For sure in France. But my parents already paid that tax. If you want to make a difference in these United States, you have to go where the money is. Stop giving money to the entities that support, fund, and enforce oppression, race supremacy, class divide, and dismiss climate matters. If the Whitney has more board members that make tear gas and endorse other manifestations of violence against humanity for profit, don't go to the Whitney. You want to see art? Curate a show. Get some artists, show their work at a cafe, your house if you have to. Make your move. These are the creative gestures that will move us forward. This is how our inconsequential gestures matter. If you think your choices are small in any way, think about trying to sleep in the summer with a tiny mosquito in your room. I saw that on Instagram. It blew my mind. Here's your art prompt, your mission, should you choose to accept it. Go to Instagram. I've mentioned Instagram a lot in this episode. Use it. Go to Instagram. Look for your city's name, then art. If you live in Vacaville, California, type in Vacaville Art. If you live in Kokomo, Indiana, type in Kokomo Art. Look at the art and curate a fantasy show. Once you have chosen three to five artists, reach out to a cafe, your office lounge, or heck, your garage. Reach out to the artist and have an art show. It's that easy. With one creative gesture, you can create a platform to build community. And if you sell any of the art, you're on your way of building a micro-economy. It's so inconsequential, but it matters. Forget the wine and the cheese plate. Get your local pupuseria involved. Send me an invite. That's it. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed what you heard, feel inspired and triggered from something you heard, please share it. You are the candle that can light endless flames with what moves you. I am Luis Martin, the art engineer, sharing with you what moves me.